Hi everyone, it's me, Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers with another episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I'm excited to be with you today and our guest is Mark Favreau, an editor of adult books or books for adults. I never know how to say that properly. I, I know you know why. But his book with LBYR is Crash, The Fall and Rise of America in the 1930s. I think I got that right. It's a lot of words. This is uh, Thank you, Mark. I did get it right. This is an acclaimed book that's received three starred reviews, and everybody I've shared this book with loves it, which makes my heart glad because I love nonfiction, and this book is right up my alley. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Victoria. Glad to be here. Now, you've had a long career writing on very important topics in a variety of formats, and I will say you are an editor yourself at an adult publishing company. I'm so sorry. It sounds so weird when you say that. I, I'm sorry, people. I just don't know how. You work on books aimed at adults and primarily correct. in nonfiction at a publishing house. That so, is correct, yes. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, everyone, for the awkwardness of that. But the question is, what is the allure of writing nonfiction for younger readers? And what has been your approach to, to doing that with Crash? Well, the allure, uh, first and foremost, is this in-house audience I have of two boys who are really my, my primary inspiration, I would say. You know, in my experience, and we're a house full of readers, kids, my kids, all of their friends have passed through this phase where their imaginations are just fired up by good stories and by by fiction storytelling, and I don't have to go into the, that, you know, the details about this golden age of reading that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, they're just bookish at a level, I think, that is really unprecedented. But at the same time, as a reader of nonfiction, I've always struggled to find nonfiction books for my kids. And there are outstanding examples of writers in this genre, you know, Steve Scheinkin and Phil Hoos and Tanya Lee Stone. But I think anyone who walks into a bookstore knows that the nonfiction shelf is usually just that. It's a shelf. You know, the example that comes to mind immediately for me as a parent is my youngest was given an assignment in a social studies class to research the Palace of Versailles. And granted, we live on an island. We live in a small place, but we have six public libraries. And I could not put my hands on a book that taught him or really instructed him on any level about the history of this incredible institution, nor could I really find one online. So he ended up baking a cake in the shape of Versailles that was about three by four feet. It was a phenomenal undertaking. It taught him a lot about being a pastry chef, and he may in fact be a pastry chef someday, but he really learned nothing about the history and culture of this place. So that's just an example that's close to home, but it, it matters to me as a parent because um, I see my own kids developing their early, their early adolescence. They're looking at the world through the eyes of young citizens. They want to understand their world. They want to figure out what makes it tick and why things are the way they are. Uh, just the other week, my 15-year-old took an overnight bus to the March for Our Lives, and he came back completely fired up and thinking about the Constitution, about the Second Amendment, about voting, about how ordinary citizens can have an impact in American politics. Uh, my younger son leaves tomorrow morning for Atlanta to tour the King Museum, and he's constantly thinking about, about civil rights and race and identity. That's my audience right there, at home but also writ large. You know, I'm, I'm interested in giving these young adults the stories and the information they need that'll push them to become active citizens. I mean, they're active in many ways already, but 
but it's the history that, you know, that informs that. And that's really full of inspiration. I had a professor, I'm a history professor when I was much, much younger, who said that the most important thing we can learn about history is that things used to be different, often quite worse, mm-hmm. and that they changed sometimes for the better, which is just another way of saying that the present can change, that it's not, we're not stuck. And I've always found that for me to be the primary motivation for thinking and writing about history. I love that answer and how it connects to your own kids' interest in activism because things change because we decide to change them. It really puts, again, uh, into the story our own activeness in creating the society and the history that we want to see. Exactly. And that is very much the story I have, I've tried to piece together in my book, Crash. So you know, why do you believe Crash, the Crash of 29 and the Great Depression needed to be written about as you have in Crash? I mean, what was the, the motivator there for this particular story, this particular epoch in the American life? Well, there's no question that I began thinking about this book in the long shadow of 2008 and 2009, when all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, really, the world as as we knew it, the economy, um, everything we always assumed would remain stable, seemed really shaky, actually in risk of collapse. Uh, my kids were quite young then. They, they were not the audience yet for a book like this. But it was a frightening time. And really everywhere you looked in the media, people started talking about the Depression, the New Deal, the safety net. It was like all of these essential parts of our daily life, our country became a little more visible, moved to center stage. And I I realized then that for, for my own kids to develop into responsible citizens, they were going to have to know about this history and these issues. You know, what is the what's the proper role of our government? Who's going to take care of us in our old age or when we fall on hard times? You know, I, I've always found that when times are good, it's much easier to talk about things like individual responsibility. Um, but when the system itself breaks down, it's like everyone wakes up to the fact that our government um, has a role to play. So the Great Depression, to me, is the first time in our history that Americans generally shifted their thinking towards this belief that they had rights uh, to expect a certain level of safety and support for the government. So there's no, so to me, like it's it's not even a a distant analogy. It's there's a direct connection between that history and our present circumstance. So you know, as much as the American Revolution and World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, this seems to me to be a, a story that our kids need to be able to grasp onto and understand. I, I love this answer because I'm a bit of a history nerd and I am fascinated by the huge social transitions that occurred through what FDR did to counter the, the Great Depression. So many of our institutions were were radically changed, but one of the stories that you have in the book is about Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and thinking about how physically transformed our country was. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that and and the before and after that you discovered through researching and writing the book? Yeah, I mean, the Tennessee Valley Authority is such a monumental story, and I I just didn't have room for the whole thing. I could have written a YA book seriously just on that. But the the amazing thing that, that happened during the Great Depression and the New Deal is really how quickly... Um, Americans uh, discovered the power of government and, and how quickly Americans were mobilized. The, the first, the, the, the sort of leading edge of this was the 
Civilian Conservation Corps, which were, was meant to be a temporary measure to put, at that time, really only young men back to work. And they were required to show up for duty at these camps all over the country. And they got a certain amount of money every week, and they had to send half of it back home to their families. So it was really a way of injecting money into the system and of mm -hmm. lifting people's spirits. So FDR was inaugurated in the early part of 1933. And by the early summer, this is so in between inauguration and the warming up of spring and early summer, 9,000 people a day were signing up for the CCC. It was just almost revolutionary. And that's just, that's one of, of dozens of examples of, of things that were going on. So the CCC, like the TVA, built things. It built bridges, it built culverts, roads. Uh, much of our park system, much of the physical infrastructure of the United States was built with public money during the Great Depression. And that, that's really what's um, amazing when you think about, let's just take, for example, uh, the FDR Parkway in Manhattan. I mean, the, the crumbling infrastructure we have today mm -hmm. and the, how little attention we pay for it, much of that infrastructure was actually built under the guidance of FDR himself. And wasn't just, you know, a kind of boring public works, works project. It was really this incredibly inspirational movement that brought together uh, millions of people. People were, were were thrilled to be involved in these in these programs. It was it was as much a psychological boost as it was a physical project. And that that's that's a big part of my story and, and one of the things that I'm most interested in. And actually, to pivot for a second, one of the really interesting things that the New Deal did was to employ artists, photographers, graphic artists. And by doing so, they created this incredible historical record, unlike anything we have for other eras of American history. There are over 200,000 individual photographs of daily life in America during the 1930s. These are at the Library of Congress, they're public property, and every one of them is available online to students, educators, ordinary citizens. Swimming in that collection is what really got me interested in this book. Because until you spend time in those photos, it's very difficult, first of all, to grasp how, how far the country had fallen, how, how awful things were, how poor Americans were, but just also how incredibly diverse and lively and interesting and different the country was. You know, photos are such a great resource for people interested in history. And they're very challenging for a writer because when you, when you string together words into a sentence and sentences into paragraphs, it, it's definitely a creative act and it feels creative. But when you're doing that while you're looking at these really rich and complicated photographs, you realize you're leaving a million things out <laughs> and that you're, mm -hmm. you're excluding as much as you're including. So I, I included um, about 150 of those photos in my book because I thought they were so important, not just as illustrations of what I'm saying, but as stories themselves. The book designer did such a phenomenal job of laying them out and of giving them prominent place so that you can sit there and really dwell on the images as, as integral parts of the story. I love that you mentioned this about artists and photographers and writers and the songs that came out of this period, because another aspect, in addition to the transformation of the physical culture of the United States, uh, moving mountains, tunnels, highways, all of that sort of thing is, this really is the moment of the explosion of mass culture in the United States with radio and film, et cetera. And 
building a new national culture out of many regional and local cultures is fascinating as well. It's a, a tremendous insight into really a very graphic before and after. Yeah, and the, for me, the, the, the most interesting aspect of the story you're describing is the, the number of people who listen to the radio, because we do have statistics on that. FDR is a famous radio personality, right? He had a he did these fireside chats, but it was actually his wife, Eleanor. She was the highest paid radio personality in the United States in her own right. And when she would tune, she had all sorts of different radio shows. When she would tune in, or whatever the correct expression is, you know, upwards of 20 million people would listen to her at a given time. They just these mass audiences. And it was much less, of course, fragmented than we are today with the internet. Like you're saying, um, when, when Eleanor Roosevelt went on the air, you know, pretty much anyone with the radio was listening to her. There was, it had this incredible unifying effect. And at the other end of the spectrum, when someone like um, a Catholic priest by the name of Father Coughlin, Detroit <laughs> went on the air and started talking about, you know, a Jewish conspiracy and the protocols of the elders of Zion and things like that. He had 20 to 30 million people uh, tuning into him as well. So there were, there were these different sort of poles, these diff this tug of war between points of view. And, and a lot of it was played out in public. You know, we think of the present as being a time where everything takes place in this public, you know, online sphere. But then uh, in many ways, there was much more of a national stage for these these discussions and debates. Yeah, and you're right, it's a fascinating time. And, you know, the, the music, uh, the culture, the film, it's all, you know, so much of it is, is, um, is still with us today. The Grapes of Wrath, the blues, the uh, really iconic WPA artwork. I mean, all of that is coming back. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of it. I'm intrigued in part by the divert melding a, a national culture out of regional cultures because one of the things you discuss in your book, and I think this connects also to the crash of 2008, is the United States was not a singular culture or country or economic situation prior to the crash of 29. And there was a variety or a diversity of experiences or of how far folks fell or did not fall in the crash of 29. Um, and I think that's a similar case in what happened in 2008. Can you speak a little bit about what you discovered in researching this book about economic diversity that was in the United States prior to this point? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the most important example of that is the, the, the stories and the history of African Americans during this period to which I devote a whole chapter in the book. And it's important because, first of all, um, the life for the overwhelming majority of African-Americans in the 30s, uh, the 1920s and the 30s was rural and it was in the South, even though the great migration had seen many, many people migrate to the North. It, the, the majority of the population still lived in these small Southern towns and, and cities. And when the depression strikes, these are the first people to lose their jobs. If they are tenant farmers or sharecroppers, they have almost no recourse uh, when they're evicted from their homes. The landowners they work for demanded more of them when less was available. And in, a, and in some cases, there's this kind of perversion of New Deal programs because I'll take one, one famous example, the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was administered by the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, paid 
farmers in the South to plow under every third row of cotton. And this was a way of diminishing the amount of cotton available on the market, raising prices, which is supposed to help farmers, right? Mm -hmm. But in the South, uh, what gets defined as a farmer is a landowner. The landowners are almost all white. So what do they do? They take the federal money, they plow under every third uh, row of cotton, and they evict hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of African-American sharecroppers from the land. So this is a very complicated time. And not only the Depression, but the New Deal itself uh, affected and benefited people um, in different ways. But you know, as bad as things were for African-Americans in the South, and they were bad, this was a time of Jim Crow, of segregation. Lynching statistics um, skyrocket after the crash of 1929. Um, and yet, What's so amazing to me is during this same period, these same unimaginably harsh circumstances, it's also the time when African-American people started to fight back against Jim Crow really on a national scale. You have the NAACP led by Walter White, which launches a national campaign against lynching. And they take their case right to the White House at a time when Washington was segregated. Um, the Scottsboro Boys case attracts national attention um, and it galvanized the public and the mass media we were talking about earlier around the question of racial equality, really for the first time in U.S. history. And then you have a whole generation of young black lawyers, Charles Hamilton Houston, Thurgood Marshall, who goes on to amazing things later in life. These men fan across the South to represent black defendants, attack segregation laws. And really, you know, we think of the civil rights movement is beginning in 1954, but we know now that the movement to end Jim Crow began in the depths of the Great Depression. It's really an amazing story of bravery, of a willingness to risk everything when your very survival was on the line. And so this is one of the most important chapters in the book for me, and it's the one I was most committed to telling. The book is filled with so many of these great stories. And you have a tremendous amount of back matter and further reading, and the indexes are amazing. But I know that in the process of putting this book together, you probably made a lot of tough choices about what you could include and what you had, even breaking your heart to do it, not fit in there. What was the story or element that you wanted to include in this book, but you just could not? It's a tough question because there are so many answers to it. I wanted this to be a story about America during the Great Depression, and I wanted America, to, in a sense, to be the protagonist and to be fighting against all of these antagonistic forces, you know, economic forces, the forces of racism and discrimination, of nativism. And constructing the story that way means I had to leave out a lot about FDR. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a traditional political history. Someone who knew a little bit about the Great Depression might be disappointed in how little I talk about FDR, even though he's an important character in the book. But I think the single, the thing that I most regret not being able to talk about more is where we just started our discussion today. It's the, the New Deal itself. Because, you know, that those are three words, the New Deal, and they encompass hundreds of thousands of people. All of these fascinating ideas and experiments and government you know, programs at the local level. I was reading just yesterday, the head librarian for the Tennessee Valley Authority, and there was a head librarian for the Tennessee Valley Authority. She was concerned that all these many hundreds of thousands of rural workers, you know, digging dams and building new channels for the, the rivers in Tennessee and all of those other states, 
that they didn't have access to books. So she created a bookmobile program, which consisted of these small steel boxes that had keys attached to them, that each of which had 60 books. And she created thousands of them and um, established one of the first uh, federal lending libraries. So that's just minuscule story that's reproduced a thousand times. So you, you could do a, a 500 page book on the New Deal and still not do it justice. And I think it's exciting because today, our sense of government is so limited and what government can do is so limited. And then it was just a time of experimentation and of positive thinking about, you know, what what America was and what we could do to help one another and how the people with the best ideas, the most creative people, they were all streaming into Washington to figure out how to solve the nation's problems. And I think it's fair to say that's not the world we live in today. So I think understanding that story is something that I, I try to capture the spirit of that in my book, but I don't tell that story fully. Well, Mark, I think if there's any book we published this spring that is key to give to young readers uh, to understand the world around them now, how we got here and where we could possibly go, it is this book, Crash. So I thank you so much for writing it and for sharing it with us and for sharing some words about the book and what you put in and sadly what you had to leave out. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Listeners Through the Universe, uh, Crash, The Fall and Rise of America in the 1930s is a fantastic book. Even within its pages, there are stories to be told beyond the book itself. It's filled with a tremendous index for further reading and directs you to all sorts of web and government resources that Mark researched for the writing of this book, the most of which are available to you as citizens and residents of this fine country. Your tax dollars at work, people. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Crash is on shelves right now. It should be on your shelf immediately. Thank you. This has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library podcast with Mark Febro, and we'll talk to you later.